you know, I went from using nootropics to run an SEO agency that I didn't want to do, but that was getting me through it to make money, etc., to now using nootropics to further this mission because I'm so passionate about, you know, having people re-understand the life-death cycle and what it means to feel like truly connected to the food that you eat. That's filmmaker and entrepreneur Monsell Denton, and this is episode 214 of Wellness Force Radio. What's up, my friend? It's your host, Josh Trent, and welcome back to another episode for your weekly access to global experts in all things wellness as we discover the physical and emotional intelligence we need to live life well. In this podcast, we talk with my friend Monsell Denton, well-known in the health, fitness, and paleo world as the founder of Neutropedia a go-to resource for everything nootropics and cognitive enhancement. But what's most interesting about this interview, live and in person, recorded in Austin, Texas, is that Monsal's focus on productivity and nootropics actually brought him to a deeper exploration of an intersection that not too many people have ever connected, the contrast of hunting consciously, harvesting animals in an ethical way, and the use of plant medicines. How combining these two can shape a different narrative around a cycle of life that is pretty uncomfortable for most people to talk about, and that is death. We know that we're all going to leave the planet someday, and until we do, we're exploring the physical and emotional intelligence to live our life well. But when it comes to these subjects, in our conversation today, you'll learn why they're all interrelated and connected. Why, when you have a more cognitively enhanced mind, you can start to explore different states of awareness and consciousness that will uncover some of the biggest blind spots for all of us that may be holding us back in life. Now, as you listen to the podcast today, keep an open mind. We talked about nootropics on the show before, but never the combination of plants, the cycle of life, and cognitive enhancement. All of these things are tools for our learning and growth path, and they're part of the circle of life, whether you look at the closed organic cycle model from Paul Check or the regenerative cycle model from Josh Tickell and Kiss the Ground. What's most fascinating about this conversation is how sometimes in life, what can be perceived as disparate subjects are actually more connected in the background of both quantum and molecular biology than we've ever understood. Now, no matter where you're listening to the show today, this is your breath break. This is your opportunity to take a deep breath. If you're not familiar with box breathing, go over to wellnessforce.com forward slash morning 21. Sign up for the Wellness Force newsletter. We've just created a brand new morning 21 system that's 21 minutes long. It integrates box breathing with examples and guidance. That's wellnessforce.com forward slash morning 21. Pick up your guide for free today. We're giving actually more free stuff away today. Make sure you leave a podcast review because when you leave us a five-star review, you're automatically entered to win a 90-day supply of Organifi red, green, and gold juice from our show sponsor, Organifi, who have become my nutritional best friend. Seriously, this red juice has become my all-time go-to afternoon energetic resource, and inside it, it's got three blends to support our total wellness, an antioxidant berry blend, an endurance blend, and a metabolic boosting blend with one of my favorite ingredients, reishi mushrooms used for like thousands of years in Asia. But now we understand through science that these adaptogens, these plant compounds, help us deal with stress. So if you're stressed, which is pretty much part of being human in our modern world, go over to Organifi.com forward slash wellness force. Just use code wellness force 
to get 20% off your deep discount for the green, the red, the gold juice with the reishi in the red, as well as the other adaptogens. Organifi.com forward slash wellness force. Use code wellness force for 20% off so you can save some money and use that money to go play out in the world with your increased energy. Coming up right now on the podcast, we're talking about what Monsal learned from going to prison early in life, how nootropics have helped him to heal from the inside out, why he's chosen to begin filming a documentary called Below the Drop, between psychedelics hunting and death, why our society is disconnected from this cycle of life and death, what he wants to change about this perception through this upcoming film, how nootropics can actually help reduce anxiety and allow us to be more connected, how to cycle nootropics, stimulants, and hit our reset button, understanding who should and should not be using nootropics and how to identify the parameters around this, and psychedelics for healing, which I know is something we've talked about on the show quite a bit in the past six months. But we also discover the shadow side of these plants, how they've become abused, unfortunately, by people as a party drug. But we also know there is a deep healing renaissance with the plants that is happening right now that we're all a part of and we're all in the process of understanding. Show notes from today are at wellnessforce.com forward slash 214. Share this podcast with somebody you care about today. Let's drop in with Monsal Denton. Monsal Denton, such a pleasure to be able to like sit with you, experience you, stay in your place, meet all these amazing people. And somehow along the way, we're going to talk about how the brain works <laughs> <laughs> and how nootropics play the role of that. But dude, it's been probably two years uh, since we actually met. We met at Paleo FX. Yeah, we did. Here in Austin at Palmer Events Center a couple years ago. Yeah. And now, flash forward 2018, so many exciting things to talk about. We could take this podcast in probably 15 directions. Yeah. But let's start in the direction of you, uh, because this is really a spotlight of you, man. Yeah. I, I feel like this Nutropedia, most people know you from Nutropedia. Mm -hmm. But what is something that they don't know about you? So there's so much about you online, man. Yeah. I mean, you put a lot of yourself on video, on blog. What's something that you don't normally share in an interview or in a podcast? Yeah, it doesn't, I guess the first thing that comes to my mind is like, what's the deep, dark secret that I don't share? But the truth is like, I'm, uh, yeah, I'm pretty like yeah. pretty open with all that kind of stuff. So I would say the thing that, that I don't share often is my incredible love for history. And that is, that's been since I was, you know, in high school and I have a real, real reverence for some of the figures that we still, you know, recall in not just history class, but just like in, you know, you think about like Martin Luther King, you think yeah. about, uh, you know, a lot of these like JFK and figures like that. And then some not so politically correct figures like Stonewall Jackson. Um, and, uh, and understanding their lives, what, what sticks out about their life today. It, there's something there for me. That's like really special. Like, Whoa, these are the guys that stood the test of time, but we yeah. still talk about, yeah. Um, and then there's also something about military history specifically that I find super compelling because it feels to me like in life or death situations like war, it brings out all aspects of the human condition. It's like an exaggerator of yes. the human condition. This is why I'm so stoked to talk about your project, this uh, plant medicine and also contrasting death. Yeah. How you're rewiring this narrative around something that, I'll be honest, man, like death is a topic that no one really wants to talk about, yet it's a part of life. Let's start at the beginning of your life journey. Uh, tell us everything about your childhood in two words. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Mother's love. Oh, that's a really good way to start, actually. Yeah. 
Now, when you founded Neutropedia, looking back, there's been like different time in jail. There's been you playing soccer on a professional level. And then there's also been you in college where you didn't really have the normal college experience. And then before that, there was obviously you living with parents who were both educators. One of them was a biochemist. Give us the skinny story. Yeah. Well, I mean, about my parents, I just grew up with kind of intellectualism always there. There was, you know, both of them have PhDs. They are both very scientifically minded. My father's like idea of a, you know, father-son kind of connection was to talk about meteorology and the weather and things like that. And so, I, I mean, as far as my parents are concerned from an early age, it was just like a lot of mental stimulation. And so I think I developed from that a huge sense of curiosity about things. And that has, yeah, I mean, that's continued and it's kind of permeated all the projects and things that I've ever focused on in my life. Neutropedia is this Wikipedia for all things nootropics. Yeah. I've always like heard two opinions on this. Some people call it nootropics. Some people call it nootropics. What's the correct pronunciation? Like, how do, what, is, what is it? Dude, I'm as lost as everybody else. <laughs> Just because I, you know, have a, a, a website that's focused on it, like not just the nootropics but term, but also yeah. like piracetam, aniracetam, like all these synthetic drugs that were developed, like, you know, the last 40 years. I don't know the pronunciations of most of them. I just, I know my pronunciation. <laughs> yes. But what's funny about nootropics is that they've been used since the 50s and even earlier. It's only in the past probably five years, maybe even 10 years, that there's been a heavy focus on how do I actually make my brain work to its most efficient capacity? Yeah. And that's what most of these nootropics do. Right. Uh, we've had Daniel Schmachtenberger on the show, Dr. Daniel Stickler. Uh, who actually got you into nootropics? Like, how did you even find that? Ooh. You know, I think that it, it was Reddit that really brought nootropics to me. A friend of mine, a South African friend of mine, showed me, you know, that the 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 nootropic subreddit, and that was at a time in my life when I was doing work that was giving me freedom, but I wasn't really jazzed about what I was doing. What kind of work was it? I was I had a SEO agency basically, so I was like doing search engine optimization for clients and. I'm super glad that I did it, paid my way through the last couple of years of college and it gave me a real useful skill that helped me with, you know, all the other projects that I've worked on since then. But at the time I was definitely looking for something uh, a little bit more meaningful to me and nootropics, oddly enough, what I found is they very readily go hand in hand with the kind of self-improvement community and so people who are looking to better themselves as far as their emotional state or mental state psychology and things like that often are also uh, drawn towards biochemical yeah. uh, mechanisms to improve their their performance or their their self in some way um, and there's you know there's shadow and gold to that which we'll talk about but mm -hmm. uh, but that was kind of the first introduction was like oh you know and a big part of that was actually me being arrested and 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 having you know pretty serious like legal charges that that would I was just in this constant state of like I messed up and I 
need to fix something in me kind of thing. And nootropics was, was one step on that, on that ladder, by the way, can we cuss? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, cool. I feel like from what I know of you, at least in the past couple of years, just understanding you and nootropics and nootropedia and, and what this contribution is that you're giving to at least the health and wellness world. But now you shifted gears and yes, you still operate Nutripedia, but there's a documentary film that you're in the process of working on here. And, and I think what's most fascinating to me is like, what has actually inspired you throughout this entire time coming from the nootropics area and then now transitioning into like more of a plant medicine and this contrast of death? What did you learn when you were understanding nootropics and how does that play a part in what you're creating now? Because I'm sure there's some, some contrast and also some bleed over. Oh, a hundred percent. What I, what I really learned, not just from the audience that I was gathering with Nootropedia, but also my own experience was how frequently nootropics, just like anything else, could be a tool that was, you know, motivated by shadowy kind of behavior. A perfect example is like, I'm not good enough to do this work that I want to do. So I need some kind of a stimulant or something like that in order to like make me good enough or, you know, just plenty of other people that come to me looking for some kind of a magic pill so that they can make more money so they can get, you know, job opportunities or whatever the case may be. And I'm not immune to it. I just, I notice it in others and I notice it in myself. And so it just, it really moved me and Nutripedia more in the direction of getting to the root of people's um, motivations and by shining a spotlight on those, helping them to determine whether nootropics could be helpful, you know, within their lifestyle for achieving whatever goals there are, they have. Uh, but then what else is useful as well? And more and more I found like we're all, we all have trauma we all have wounds from childhood, from relationships, etc. And in healing those, we have an opportunity to, you know, connect more with ourselves, love ourselves, and th from that place, really contribute to our community and to the world in the way that we were meant to. Yeah. So kind of reversing this process to get back to like that, this original state so that we can, you know, come forth with some kind of beauty. What's the name of the documentary that's coming out? Below the Drop. And, and what's it all about? Like, give us the Below the Drop description. The, basically, my thesis is we're too disconnected from death. And that shows up in a number of different ways. For me, most specifically, it showed up in how disconnected from the meat that I was eating I was. And so I wanted to go down this, uh, this, you know, rabbit hole of hunting my own meat and eating my own meat. And there was some, you know, ayahuasca experiences that m helped me to make a commitment to only eat meat that I killed. Uh, and so I'm, I'm currently doing that. And so the documentary is going to cover a hunt that I go on in September uh, for elk in Colorado, but it's more, it's far deeper as uh, a philosophical question about what our relationship to, to death is. What, why are we scared of death when it's part of the life cycle? Mm. Why is it wrong in many circles to take the life of an animal uh, when it can be done consciously? It has been done consciously for thousands of years by indigenous tribes. 
And the other component of it is really the the psychedelic component, which has been powerful for me uh, in my you know personal experience combined with hunting. But I think, again, for indigenous cultures, almost every indigenous culture except the Inuit used some type of mind-altering substance. And through that, they had, you know, this ego, death, uh, they had just different perspectives on their relationship to death that I think was super valuable. And I don't want to romanticize indigenous cultures and things like that. But yeah, and I definitely don't even feel like in any way that you're romanticizing the hunting portion either. It's more about an honoring than a romanticizing. For sure. But yet we see in our society right now, it's like there's hunting shows and there's like all these different shows where we're really getting people excited about going back to the old ways, back to nature, living life through more of this natural ancestral lens. Uh, does that play a part in what you're creating with this below the drop? 100%. For me, it's a very, very spiritual practice, taking the life of another animal. I mean, there's nothing that feels of greater significance to me than seeing the life of an animal that's not that far removed from humans. I mean, they have emotions, like you can sense they have strong ties with their families. And taking that life, that's so powerful. That's such a powerful experience. And I think that many of our ancestors did have reverence for the animals that they took and they realized that this animal uh, fed them, clothed them. And I'm an advocate, but more, most importantly, I just want to practice this for my own sense of gratification. And I find, yeah, immense value in kind of this spiritual uh, approach to to the animals and to the life cycle that I get to experience. I think, I think what scares most people about hunting, though, is they're like, whoa, I have to go kill an animal, but yet they've seen the animals meet and brothers and sisters wrapped in plastic for probably their entire lives in grocery stores. And it actually brings up memory. I remember when Rob Wolf did a challenge, I think it was on this major news network, and he and a bunch of people spent 30 days with like no food, no electricity, no water, just like a loincloth or something out in the middle of nowhere. And he was the guy with the outlaw that actually killed a big deer, like this big... Um, I think it was like a five or six point deer. And I remember when they walked up to the deer, everyone was crying. There was this one woman that was crying and they all kind of like stood there and just like honored the animal. And for him, it was this exploration that he had gone on where he had been in the paleo community for a while. He had had like the narrative of being like, like one of the leaders in paleo, you know, but he had never actually had that experience and it changed him in a really drastic way. And I remember him talking about it in his show multiple times where he now had this incredible deeper amount of respect and honoring for this animal. And I've, in multiple times in my life, I've, I've been like, I would really like to go on a deer hunt. I would really like to go actually see what it's like to have the blood of an animal that I've killed and honor and go through that process. Because man, how many people are disconnected from their food? And it almost makes me wonder, what if men and women were to be able to hunt in a integrous and an honoring way to these animals in a conscious way? Like, is that really what you're creating? This, this conscious hunting mindset rather than just like killing animals just for the sake of sport, which I don't know if I believe in that. I think right. if we're going to kill something, we have to honor it by eating it. Yeah. Well, there's a couple things to that. One, it's like you gave me a layup. Like a big part of what I want to to do is create like conscious hunting experiences and, uh, you know, bring people into a space that they have the opportunity to, to, to tap into that because there's so many people that are from urban environments that I speak with who 
have heard of hunting or they've like seen it in a different context from other people, maybe the traditional way like you're talking about, and it just puts them off. And when I explain my experience, they're like, oh, I want that. And so I think there is kind of a resurgence uh, in a lot of communities. I think the paleo community is going to be very receptive to the, the message. And I think that Honestly, there's a lot of overlap even with vegans as far as being conscientious of our ecosystem, what kind of uh, actions we're taking, being connected to to the land. And also, I mean, I'm not really uh, a huge fan of factory farming or anything Neither like that. Neither am I. And we've talked about CAFO on the show before, controlled animal feeding operations. So we have these thousands and thousands of yard facilities, especially the one in California, Norco, NorCal, the middle of California, right by, uh, right by a different Hesperia location. There are cows that are like, as far as the eye can see, and they're sitting and bathing in their own shit. There's nothing healthy about that, yet that's what's actually feeding this appetite that we have for meat. So I'd like to pose this question to you. Do you actually feel like we should be eating less meat, but actually the meat we eat should be devoured in a conscious way? 100%. I think we should eat less meat. I think we should consider really, really, you know, we get to vote with our money. And if you can go to a local farmer's market, you can just ask a few questions, find some of those vendors that have the free ranging animals and things like that and use it as a treat. Um, You know, maybe have it like once every few days or something like that. Um, but I do think that it's really, really valuable to have, uh, just be really mindful of, of how much we're eating because, you know, uh, I think I told you this the other day, like 40% of the U S is arable farmland. A big part of that is like different grains, corn, rice, all that kind of stuff. But also a lot of that corn is going to feed livestock. Yeah. And so it's, you know, it's not, it's, it's just a, it's a huge ecological problem that we face. And the more connected we are to all the manifestations of our actions, the, the better off we're going to be, the, the more, uh, you know, thoughtful we're going to be with, with our actions. This thoughtfulness though, the way that you've formulated Nutripedia and then also now with Below the Drop, there's a lot of thoughtfulness, a lot of conscientiousness, a big connection as to why you do this on a moral, like a guide, a guidepost actually. That wasn't the case for you though, uh, because at one point in your life, you're in jail Yes, and you weren't very conscientious then. No. Your, your moral compass dig, didn't exactly exist from your heart out into the stratosphere. Right. right. Going from that point to now, like who have you become since then? Why did you even go to jail? What was that all about? You know, it, it, it took a long time for me to get to this place, but that was all about my own like pain and inadequacies and insecurities. And I went to jail because, t- to make a really long story short, there was a woman in Switzerland. I was a virgin at the time. I questioned my masculinity. I questioned, like, I had all these insecurities around being a man, and I wanted to go be with this woman in Switzerland. And I was willing to put anything that it took to, you know, make that happen. And that included stealing documents from a museum and selling them in order to go be in Europe. And, you know, it took me like many years to, to realize this, to realize that it was coming from a place of insecurity and coming from a place of, you know, not feeling uh, enough self-love. But once I finally came to that point, I could forgive myself because I realized that I was just doing the best that I could to find love and to 
you know, have a sense of connection with somebody. Uh, and that was really important, forgiving myself for that. And, 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 and I think the biggest change from then to now is just like a deeper sense of love for myself. The, the self-love journey came almost from a description I heard from you right now, like a James Bond episode. You had to steal documents from a Swedish museum in order to go find love in a different country. Like, what are you talking about? What, what, what does that mean? What well, was that? so I was working as an intern in a, a small private museum. Basically, this, this man had dedicated his garage to you know creating a, a small museum, and they had uh, original... Um, they're Nuremberg trial documents. So they're documents that, you know, lawyers and journalists and, you know, a bunch of different people would have had. Some very important documents. They're important. There were copies. So like there was many, many different copies of these documents, but they're old still. I mean, they're from the 1940s, you know, uh, the Nuremberg trial. So I was working with them because I, like I said, I was very interested in history and I collected World War II stuff and, you know, uh, when my parents said that I needed to come up with the money myself to go to Switzerland, I just had that temptation that was right there staring me at the face and the, 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 the inadequacies and the pain and insecurities around my relationships with women um, made it so that I, you know, ignored that voice, that moral voice that, you know, my parents taught me right that that was stealing, but I ignored it to fulfill whatever, you know, needs that I had or desires that I had. And, um, you know, obviously it it was the best thing that ever happened to me. Yeah. How long were you actually in jail? Well, I was in prison for six months. So I got an eight year sentence and got a six month, uh, you know, timeframe that I was there. When you got out, like what was the day, what was the reckoning that you had in your heart, in your consciousness, leaving the jail, leaving prison going, okay, what am I going to create now? Like, did you visualize Neutropedia in jail? No. Honestly, like the the days coming out of jail were, or it was, which by the way, big distinction between jail and prison. Jail is like you're there, you like you could have gotten a DWI or something, like you know could have had a marijuana charge or whatever. Yeah. If you're in prison, it's legit. It's felon, like some hard, yeah, hard guys that are there. Big difference between the two that I experienced. You know, um, when I first got out, it was just like so much stimulation. Because I had been used to seeing no women, same thing every day. I had my routine. I had just, you know, I was just focused on doing the best that I could with what I had. And when I got out of prison, it was like, there was just so much, so many options. It's like, oh my God, I can eat whatever I want. Yeah, it was like a newfound sense of freedom. It was. It was also, but it was in in sometimes in a negative way. Like it felt like very overwhelming. And I felt like I kind of had PTSD because, you know, people would be behind me and I'd feel real uncomfortable with people behind me because in prison, it's like something you're, you know, pretty conscious of. And women, I was just like, oh my God, I don't know how to deal with you anymore because I haven't had experience with a woman in six months. Yeah. And, uh, and it was just an interesting dynamic that I felt. How do you feel that this experience prepared you to actually lead this Neutropedia community? Because you probably get a ton of like Fortune 50 CEOs and all these high performers that reach out to you. And they're asking out of the thousands of options out there, what do I take from a pharmacological level, from a, from actual like chemistry level that'll help me in my life? How did being in jail and what did that experience do that actually prepared you to lead this Neutropedia community? Well... I th- I firmly believe that it was the rite of passage that helped me become a man from a boy. And that level of maturity it 
gives me the the sense in myself that I can tell these Fortune 500 CEOs, this is what I know. Here are some things I don't know, like humbly. I can do some research for you. And, you know, this is what I know to the best of my mo- my knowledge. Yeah. So I think there's a healthy balance there of humility with confidence in myself that came from prison because when you go to prison when i went to prison it was like all my power stripped away i don't even have control of my schedule they they bring breakfast at like 3 30 in the morning it's incredible like it's almost like they do it on purpose and you know can't control what i eat i don't have any possessions no possessions whatsoever so a lot of you know stripping away uh, of my ego in a lot of ways that allowed me to just be a little bit more humble um and then by the same token like i fucking survived that shit and there was a point there was inflection point where i went from you know eating just like foods that would make me feel better for a moment and watching tv and stuff to waking up early i was working out i was fasting i was eating the right stuff i was going to the library and reading books like i read every single book and it was really broken into like two halves like the first half was just like spiral down and the second half was like i hit rock bottom like i'm doing the best i can when i'm here kind of thing and so i got a lot of confidence from that experience Mm. i could see that becoming a man it was that was a rite of passage it reminds me of that scene in 300 where the boy goes out and he's just by himself and he has to kill this huge beast you kill the beast really early in your life i don't think a lot of men go through that that early and i think you're right like maybe looking back that did allow you to have more leadership more presence and this presence part is what i think most people are lacking now it's harder to be present in this current society than it's ever been and nootropics and these cognitive enhancements, they help us with that. You know, I've had great experiences with qualia, but what do people get wrong? Like when people start out, they start fishing for the right nootropic. What do they miss typically? I think they miss their motivations. And that's the biggest thing. Again, like it's kind of coming down to a more esoteric uh, conversation. But if you go in to start ch- taking nootropics and you don't understand what you want out of them, it's really, really easy to go down the wrong rabbit hole because these are very nuanced chemical compounds and, you know, there's nothing wrong with doing, like, Adderall necessarily, right? It's a tool. Adderall's a tool and there's plenty of people who use it uh, without prescription. I don't recommend it, but it's still a tool and if you have a specific purpose, then that could be better than some more benign nootropic that's used without a purpose that creates like all kinds of problems and side effects. So, you know, I really want to encourage anybody who's getting into nootropics to find out what are your motivations? What are your goals? And that helps to, you know, eliminate so many different nootropics and put you on a path that you can, you know, actually get something done. I know what got me into it is because I was experiencing decision fatigue And so the more I do these podcasts, actually, and the more I have these like really interesting high level conversations, the more verbal fluency I naturally tend to lean into. But nootropics really helped me in my first year of podcasting, like 2015 into 2016. It really allowed me to, I was playing around with Alpha Brain for a while, and then I found Qualia in 2016. And it allowed me to just depend on something that could almost unlock greater connection in these moments. Have you found the same? And, and what exactly is going on in my body when I'm taking the nootropic and when I feel more connected to someone else? What is that? 
that you know it depends on the nootropic i imagine you know a lot of these nootropics actually their mechanism of action how they work is to improve specifically with cognition so if you take a test like performance of your your cognitive abilities they improve your cognitive your cognition by reducing your anxiety so you know think about like a test you might have had in high school a big test it was like super stressful more than likely that's reducing your capacity to to perform on the test because you're you know you're you're, you're not thinking stressed stress. out about the test exactly yeah. central nervous systems overactivated and so a lot of these nootropics actually work by reducing that stress response reducing anxiety and allowing you to perform mentally uh, i wouldn't be surprised if uh, if it's a combination of that and you're consistently getting you know used to and comfortable with mm. the podcasting but there's certain nootropics like for me specifically phenylpyrazine is one that i very clearly identify as improving my verbal fluency i'm just able to use words more eloquently specific words frame things in ways that i don't feel capable of doing when i'm without it uh so i know that certain nootropics specifically work on verbal fluency regions. The The phenylparacetam, say that 20 times fast. Uh, What's going on there in our, in our cognitive capacity is what? Is this decreasing the time that the synapses have the response with one another? Is it increasing the myelin sheath around the axon and the neuron complex? Like what's actually going on so that we have these faster thoughts, which allow us to articulate those, which by the way, it's still fascinating to me that we have this brain that tells our voice box to move. And then that's why I'm talking to you. These things happen in so fast. Micro, like microseconds. In microseconds, yet these cognitive enhancement tools, these nootropics, this, this phenylparacetam that you talked about, what's going on there? Like yeah. What's actually happening in the brain? Well, paracetam is one of the earliest nootropics that was, it's actually the nootropic that was developed in the 1960s that led to the term nootropic. And it's a memory enhancer. It's a GABAminergic, which means it's like a, it's like a, uh, it's a GABA derivative. So it looks kind of like the neurotransmitter GABA. And it, it interacts with the uh choline system, cholinergic system, and specifically like in the hippocampus. So there's a lot of studies that show piracetam improves memory formation, learning ability. And the phenyl group, it's ju- it's a very similar to piracetam, but it's got an extra phenyl group if you're looking at like a, from a biochemical perspective. And that, according to uh, Dr. Andrew Hill, uh, it actually helps to get through the blood-brain barrier more effectively than piracetam and works in some of these verbal fluency regions of the brain. More specifically, how it interacts with those verbal fluency regions of the brain, I don't fully understand. In fact, I don't know that anybody does, but that's kind of the gist of it, and that's why phenylparacetam can be so much more stimulating than piracetam, because it crosses the blood-brain barrier much quicker. And according to Dr. Hill, on brain scans, it actually looks like cocaine to some degree. Wow. But these are not addictive substances though. I mean, nootropics can addict people, right? Depends on the nootropic and it depends on what your definition of nootropic is because there's a lot of compounds that, you know, have been used in a medicinal sense for thousands of years in Ayurvedic medicine, like Bacopa Monieri and Gotukola, et cetera, that are nootropics. And there are, you know, people who would consider things 
that could be addictive. Like there's a, you know, there's a drug called uh, gabapentin. There's a drug called phenibute. Phenibute is a better example. Phenibute is, uh, it's a, it helps with anxiety, relaxation. It's uh, actually was made for cosmonauts in Soviet Russia who are, you know, going in this zero, this, uh, like handles the G force, you know, the G force. Okay. Something helps to balance their inner ear or something. Right. And that's, that's quite addictive for a lot of people and it creates withdrawal symptoms, uh, tolerance issues. So for sure, some of these nootropics can be addictive and, but like any tool, they can be abused. The, the, there's, you know, you start to realize like anything it doesn't matter how healthy yeah it is on a physical level can be abused well and in health and wellness too sometimes somebody finds something that works like let's say a low carb diet or a keto diet or whatever and they do it for years and they're not getting results and they're not changing they're not getting the results they want at all and they keep doing it because like well it worked in the past so cycling nootropics if you take the same nootropic for too long what does that look like for cycling like, like, what do you see being successful for most people um, with the top nootropics out there? Is it a month and then take a week off? Is it five days like quality and then take two off? Or does it truly depend on just the compound itself? Depends on the compound, depends on the person, depends on what kind of work one is doing. I find, you know, caffeine is one of the best stimulants, you know, in ways to improve mental performance that's out there. That's why it's so popular. But as anyone who drinks coffee every day can attest, it loses its efficacy over time. Yeah, and people aren't cycling coffee. Like Starbucks is open seven days a week for a reason. Right. (laughs) And that's that's one of the first steps is to, in my judgment, is to take a closer look at how we're using stimulants and, you know, using stimulants a little bit more mindfully. I don't have anything wrong with them. I use them myself. But you know, taking caffeine maybe twice a week instead of every single day, multiple times a day is really effective. And people can start that by taking one or two weeks off of caffeine to kind of totally reset. I typically find that when I travel, it's a great time for me to reset all of my uh, tolerance with nootropics completely because it's easy. You know, I'm not planning to get a lot of really good deep work in anyway. Uh, And so I can just enjoy that environment wherever I am. But what I find is that, you know, many people are using stimulants, nootropics, and with focus and concentration, those are somewhat linear mental processes. So if you if you think about it, you have specific tasks and you need to do those tasks. So you kind of have like tunnel vision and you're like, these are the tasks like do, 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 do. And then when you, uh, you know, have certain like nootropics that help with uh, working memory, it helps to often see like a wide number of different topics and kind of bring them together. That's where create creativity comes from because you're seeing like you have like in your mind space you kind of have all these disparate ideas and you can pick and choose and put things together in different forms and I find oftentimes that those are very different processes creativity and concentration come sometimes can be very different sometimes they come together in great ways in like flow states but uh, and then there's also this great mental freedom 
when I'm not taking any nootropics that I also benefit from. I think a lot of people are scared when they take nootropics that they'll take them and then when they're not taking the nootropics, they'll be like, you know, blunt or dull or sure. something, not, not super Well, sharp. I have to depend on that almost like a crutch. And it's right. the same thing almost if somebody always wears an ankle brace, they'll never get their ankle stronger. Right. And so that's why taking out the nootropics, cycling them in can actually allow the brain to unlock even greater levels of comprehension and cognition. So I've even noticed too, you know, I take nootropics maybe three, four days a week. And that's about it. Um, the other days, though, I find that I do try to time it to when I'm doing something like I don't want to do. Like nootropics really help me when I have to do analytical spreadsheets or like some task that, that really doesn't feel good. Like I'm not a great math person. I'm like you. I love history. And so when I need to do these tasks that aren't really fulfilling to my soul, they don't make me super happy inside, I've found that nootropics really help me. Have you seen this as well for these people that actually ask you for coaching and support with nootropics? Like what do they really want? Do they want to push through the analytical stuff or do they want want more creativity to be maximized. Uh, it seems to be that most people want stimulants. And if you zoom out on our culture as a whole, that makes sense. Like Adderall and some of these like highly stimulatory drugs are drugs that improve productivity and efficiency. And these are all things that we value as a, as a society, especially Western and American society, which is, you know, built very much on capitalism. And so I think it's a cultural thing. And I think, you know, stimulation is, is a huge uh, factor that people are kind of looking for. And then, you know, the other part too is just we, so many people are doing work that they don't want to do. And, yeah. you know, I, I pretty much only work on projects that really light me up and they're like what my, my heart's calling towards. But even then, there's stuff that I don't want to do within those projects. Yeah, just because you're working on a beautiful dream doesn't mean there's days that don't feel like it's a dream. Right. <laughs> I don't care who you are. Yeah. It's not always sexy. No. It's oftentimes not sexy. Yeah. But it's... You know, using stimulants to get through those kinds of things is is huge, and I think there's a lot of people that are just working in office jobs or something that they they really are on so many levels just feeling like they need something to get through it. Yeah, that's where stimulants come. So in. it's interesting because there's a correlation between the mindless consumption of animal protein because there's just like this kind of inner hunger for flesh. And then there's also capitalism, which doesn't follow the laws of nature. It's the only force on our planet that doesn't have a beginning, middle, and end. And maybe it will have an end just in our lifetime, we're not sure. And so I look at like a tree in the forest, it grew from a tiny sapling and it came all the way up to be kissed by the sun and eventually it will die. And when it dies, it gives fuel and, and life force to the things around it. So there's two things we're not respecting as a society. We're not respecting the natural habitat of honoring the animal and consuming the animal. And then we're also taking all these stimulants like maybe excessive nootropics so that we can feed this hungry ghost that is capitalism. And I'm not anti-capitalism, but I think that there's a way to make capitalism more egalitarian. How do you feel that this correlation actually exists? Have you ever thought about these two things being together? No, but I have thought about the, the, you know, what psychedelics do in comparison to these stimulants. So stimulants are very much like, you know, do, 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 create like efficiency and productivity, etc. for this capitalist machine, no matter what. But when you 
tap into psychedelic experiences, it's so mind expanding. It's such the opposite of a, of a stimulant. Yeah. It creates a sense of being in connection to the planet and being not removed from capitalism, but putting capitalism into context. It's not a runaway, you know, I don't know what you would call it, but like some kind of runaway demon that when we, you know, when we don't have the ability to step back and connect with nature, it just kind of goes off course. And so, I mean, I definitely see how stimulants feed this machine and in my judgment psychedelics can when used you know in a in a good context feed the opposite which is you know a, a lot more love and you know hugging a tree which i do and i love you're trees. such a dirty hippie i'm a dirty hippie <laughs> but at the same time you take that the like the gesture and how do i come back to reality and set my intellectual scientific and you know all of the prowess that i have as a man with a mission to do just like the capitalists are doing but in service of of something greater that is connected to to nature so i kind of use both i use the psychedelics to like get perspective then i use the stimulants to make it happen yeah. And the fascinating part about this is I had that awareness. I had this understanding of those two things I mentioned to you, where if you looked at them on paper, you wouldn't think that there was any correlation. Oh, CAFO meat and, and the amount of meat that's processed and consumed in the United States versus um, how we're ignoring the laws of nature. At first glance, it may not seem like they're connected, but it was actually in a ceremony where I had that connection, where I understood you know, how we truly do one thing. And a lot of people overuse this phrase, but how we truly do one thing is how we do all things. Like the way that I interrelate with you, the way that I care for you and our friendship and my body and the people around me and my car and everything in our life, it's all connected. Yet we do see these short-term things that are driven by almost like a feedback loop that is just allowing people to have temporary release of suffering. Maybe for some people, nootropics aren't the answer. What is the kind of personality or who are the kind of people that should not be using nootropics? Well, obviously there's the the medical kind of caveats if you're if you have certain disorders and things like that and you uh, have been told by a doctor that you should take certain things and you're kind of tinkering and tweaking on your own then that's something to be concerned about because you know e- even with Adderall which I'm not a huge fan of for off label use Adderall? I've never tried it but even for off label use I'm you know kind of uh, uh, not a proponent of it, but but for many people who legitimately are prescribed and should be prescribed Adderall, it's life-changing in a positive way. So I don't think that anyone is necessarily should not use it because there's, you know, there's some basic things like let's say fish oil, for example, we are so far removed from our ancestral environment that the, you know, there's so much science that suggests the ratio of omega-3 to omega-6 fatty acids should be 1 to 1, and the standard American diet is like 20 to 1 omega-6s. And so taking fish oil uh, is really, really effective for balancing that ratio, which comes with a number of different downstream effects, including, you know, like reduced inflammation and things like that. And so there's not really, I think everybody needs to take uh, kind of a skeptical approach and, yeah. and take it on a case by case basis, yeah. but nobody comes across 
you know, to me as like, you should not take any kind of nootropics. Got it. So this is totally different than psychedelics, where if there's schizophrenia in your family or if you have certain uh, mental health issues, there should be no exploration of psychedelics whatsoever. Yeah. What actually got you down the road of exploring psychedelics? Because you came from this environment, again, where there was heavy education and then going to jail, then being released, understanding freedom. This is like a quick summer of your whole life. <laughs> You're doing it well. <laughs> to then founding this, uh, this website where you, anybody can learn about nootropics. And now coming into this film, psychedelics seem to have played a massive role in the development of this documentary film. When did you get involved with psychedelics and how do you view them? Do you see psychedelics as a creative and an inspirational piece in your life or is it something much deeper? Yeah, it's definitely something much deeper. I see psychedelics as, you know, one thing that came to me recently was every problem in our world that's man-made all the ecological disaster, the pollution, the everything, poverty that we can think of, that's all a manifestation of collectively what is going on with our minds. And if we can fix the traumas and the addictive behaviors, which oftentimes are rooted in trauma, and, and really, really come to a place where we are l loving of ourselves and in touch with ourselves, we can fix the problems that are uh, occurring externally. And I personally believe psychedelics are one of the most transformative ways to heal ourselves and thereby, you know, create the change in the world. How that so? We need to. Why do you think it's that powerful? Well, I mean, there's so much, there's plenty of science around, you know, different experiences. I'm reading a book by Stanislav Grof right now where he's talking about LSD experiences and specifically the percentage of people that do psychedelic experiences that have a greater connection to nature using psychedelics. If I'm not saying that everybody needs to, but if if many of the most important people were doing psychedelics regularly and reconnecting to that connection with nature, I b firmly believe a lot of the problems with how capitalism has you know run amok in certain instances would be reversed or would you know go down a different rabbit hole and. Can, really just connecting to uh, what, our, what our actions are creating, kind of seeing all perspectives of it. But this hasn't been that long for you. I mean, your exploration has been, what, two years or less than two years, right? Yeah. And, you know, the interesting thing is I had some big breakthroughs with psychedelics, like, you know, after I got out of prison. It was all done after I got out of prison. And I had some big breakthroughs around, uh, you know, my relationships with women, my relationship with myself. And I, you know, felt a strong sense of empathy for the first time. I mean, I felt empathy, but this was like a different level of empathy while I was on, you know, psilocybin. Mm -hmm. But it's been more recent that I've had some major, major epiphanies that is, it, they're very personal in the sense that I find a connection to a higher power, which is something that I have never had uh, in, you know, 27 years of life. And only in the past six months have I felt really connected to a higher power. Uh, and that doesn't mean the traditional God in sure. the sky with a beard, whatnot, but just higher power. <laughs> That's funny. That's how I always describe that as well. It doesn't have to be some old white dude with a beard in the clouds. Right. Yeah. 
I mean, mine, mine is, uh, yeah, my version is very, it's very unique to the kind of scientific background that I grew up with. And it involves many of the phenomena that we have scientifically identified. And then many of the phenomena that we have not identified yet that maybe we will eventually down the line. Yeah. I was listening to Michael Pollan recently, and he's actually here this weekend, which I'm so excited about. And he was talking about how on many interviews, when he started to do his book tour, that there were reporters that would click off the microphone and they would say, listen, I have to tell you this, but I didn't want to tell you when we were recording. Um, I had a life-changing experience through psilocybin or through ayahuasca or through iboga, whatever it is. And he said that there's such a stigma around psychedelics that part of what he wants to do is unpack this stigma and shine light on all the dark spots of what people have really seen for probably 50 years plus, where you know the, the inventor actually of LSD, the guy that discovered it, he had this life-changing experience where he rode a bike and he wanted to share it with everyone. Somewhere along the lines, though, people did start abusing these psychedelics. That is a real part. That is the, the shadow side of, of psychedelics. I do see, though, in our current society, there is a beautiful renaissance happening right now around all types of psychedelica. Why do you think the renaissance is happening now? Like, what's going on collectively with us as a species as to, in 2018, while we're seeing so much energy and so many conversations around the revisualization and the, and, and the destigmatization of psychedelics? Well, I think what happened with kind of the, you know, they have, there's like three waves they consider of psychedelic use. The first wave is indigenous use for thousands of years. Second wave was in the the 50s, 60s, and 70s to some degree. And now we're kind of experiencing the third wave. And what stands out most to me is this deeper sense of connection, like all these like open-minded experiences that come from psychedelics were extremely dangerous to the administration in the United States in the 60s and 70s. And Nixon and the, you know, conservative elements of society cracked down and they controlled information and information just ran amok as far as taking these isolated experiences of, you know, people abusing psychedelics and exaggerating them. And because for so long everybody's just reliant information-wise, on mainstream media resources, of course, everybody is just being fed the information that these things are dangerous. And we've entered a decentralized era where information is readily available, uh, experiences are readily available. You can go outside the country to places where these are completely legal to experience. And these the you can't keep the cat in the bag when information is so decentralized i mean you reach thousands and thousands and thousands of people with this podcast and even if the some administration didn't want me talking about how great psychedelics are they can't really do much yeah so i think that is part of the renaissance is just the ability that we now have to educate ourselves and empower ourselves to make the decisions for ourselves there's many pieces of history that I think, even if you look at some people uh, in biblical times and the understanding that the whole thing about mana, actually in the Bible, the research on mana is that mana was actually a psilocybin mushroom. And that's actually, that's something that Joel Osteen mentioned in The Reality of Truth in the documentary about the experience of not just everything that's happening in Peru, but also like the Rhythmia experience in Costa Rica and just understanding how so many dots are connecting back to 
biblical times, thousands and thousands of years ago, these tools, these ancient tools, which really that's what plants are. They're just tools like a nootropic. It's the same thing as far as humans evolving. Yet now we live in this hyper-connected world where I feel like we're at this time where it's also the psychedelic renaissance. And also there's a greater scare around psychedelic medicine as well. How do you think that this film that you're coming out with will actually revamp that and shine the light where it gets to be shined for healing, for the collective healing? Yeah. Well, I think that there's there's definitely some conservative elements that still are scared of or resistant to psychedelic experiences and they have a certain kind of connotation because in the same way that you know you and I might have been raised in more liberal environment uh, where you know we've been taught that okay wait say psychedelics can be good that, you know to some degree we both have kind of hippie tendencies uh, but there's a large swath of the population that I, you know, I don't believe uh, have that, you know, middle America doesn't necessarily always feel that way. And I'm glad that Michael Pollan wrote this book because a lot of people in that neutral kind of zone. This is the same guy that wrote In Defense of Food. He's been interviewed by Oprah. I mean, this is a big deal. This is a very big big deal. deal. Big deal. Um, And I think my film specifically is going to reframe and push the boundaries in a specific subset of people, namely hunters, namely conservative elements that may traditionally be involved with hunting, to recognize that, at least for me, and I also believe for everybody else, there is a very powerful element of conservation that comes with hunting and many hunters will say that they're conservationists but with psychedelic experiences i've been able to tap into that side so much more to really tap into the 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 love that i have for nature and even though that i'm taking a life having a super strong connection to uh, that animal and to nature itself and so i think there's going to be a lot of conservative elements that might be resistant to the idea at first maybe people who are into hunting who want to watch something related to hunting that are going to now have a different perspective on psychedelics and what that means for for them basically it's a it's a you know hunting is a way that i can uh, relate to them it's like oh he's one of us but he's also doing this other thing that i've never thought could be you know combined with this or in yeah. any way related to this but i see how it it does connect. And I think it's really important too to mention that it seems like this is a, a documentary film that's more about the blending of consciousness through this lens of psychedelics in a practice right now that's pretty unconscious. I mean, hunting is a very, in most cases, a very unconscious thing where you have these people shooting massive animals, cutting their head off and leaving the body there. Mm-hmm. I mean, it happens way more times than people even realize. Yeah. It's a very big deal. Have you researched kind of that deleterious side of hunting yeah. in preparation for the documentary? Well, yeah, it's, 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 a hard, it's a really tricky situation because I think that, that, that the number of people who are in that camp who just you know, waste the the animal or they are trophy hunters. I think it's a small percentage in my judgment of the, you know, the total population. I wonder what the data is on that. I'd be so curious to learn that. But most hunters really are just like, to some degree, they're subsistence hunters. They live out in the country. They have like land or even they just live in regions where they can go, you know, hunt. It's acceptable. Texas is one of those regions where they can just go hunt and uh, and eat venison and have, you know, have that meat. And so I think 
just like with psychedelics, a few sm a small number of people take super high doses of these drugs. They shouldn't be taking them, and they're not doing it in the right set and setting. The same thing goes for hunters. You get a small percentage of people who have gone down that rabbit hole of thinking that they need bigger bucks yeah. and more exotic animals and everything, and and they, and they do things that I find you know un I find very uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. And that being said as well, there's a real, not that I condone the, the small percentage of people that do that kind of thing, but there's a lot of conservation that comes from somebody spending $40,000 to go hunt an animal. They go hunt an animal and I abhor the fact that they don't honor the animal, you know, especially with like predators, like going lion hunting and something like that. Like something yeah. inside me feels like that's like kind of, you know, uncomfortable, but it, but with a lot of these, these predators, like grizzly bears, for example, if, if hunters don't go out and call the population of grizzly bears, they come into settlements and then government agencies have to kill the grizzly yeah. bears. Yeah. And so why not sell the tags for those for thousands of thousands of dollars, use that money for conservation, which if there's one government organization in the United States that has done well, it's the conservation organizations. And, uh, and so I, you know, I don't have, I don't particularly want to make the argument in favor of people going out and killing predators and killing animals and not eating the meat. And I recognize that it's not black and white. Yeah. What what's the dream then? If if you could snap your fingers and this film comes out, what's the change that you'd want it to have? You know, I've had that. I've thought about that question because I, if I snap my fingers and everybody stopped eating factory farmed foods and only ate food that they hunted, it would be unsustainable. Because there's only 21 million white-tailed deer in the country, 300 million people. There's no way it's going to, you know, be able to manage that population. So really, realistically, what I'd like to do is I'd like for every, you know, successful business person, entrepreneurs, scientists, people who really have intellectual, uh, financial, political capital where they can make change, I want them to have the experience of taking a life consciously, to be connected to that. And therefore, when they, ha when they can draw on that experience, just like a psychedelic experience, yeah. it's life-changing and it changes what they create in the world. Maybe a scientist that is working on you know, erectile dysfunction pills has this experience of killing an animal and decides instead of working on ED pills, they're going to go work on this synthetic meat because synthetic meat is, you know, it's going to come out, it's going to be biologically identical to regular meat and hopefully reduce. I think a lot of it's already out. Yeah, right now. yeah, yeah. It's just getting cheaper and cheaper. Yeah. And the more, the, the more, yeah, the more capable people that have this perspective, I think the better. Oh, this is so exciting, man. I'm so stoked for this to come out. And, and also too, I think a byproduct of this film and of the awareness it's going to create is a ripple of the change that's possible where if somebody's killing an animal for the very first time and they make this connection, this spiritual, emotional connection to the animal, I wonder how much less meat would be consumed if 10 million people saw this film. If 10 million people saw this film, how that would impact 
uh, global warming, from less animal feedlots, from less animal production, from less CAFOs, less greenhouse gas, lower carbon footprint. I mean, the ripple of earlier in our conversation, we talked about how we do one thing is truly how we do all things. Somebody sees this film, the ultimate dream that I have for you too, is that this actually lowers meat consumption from the CAFOs and it allows people to tap back in with what's real. Yeah. So let's both put that as a seed of the garden in the universe. Absolutely. And I think that even when consuming meat, there's a real... So if you look at like vegans and a lot of the you know, vegetarians and a lot of the foods that are commonly consumed by, you know, that people who identify with that. Uh, I don't mean to point fingers or anything like that, but, but as humans in society, we contribute to the death of animals. doesn't matter what you eat and you, what you put in your mouth, we are contributing to it. If you've ever go out to see cornfields that get cleared by the combines, there are baby deers, there are mice that get poisoned in yeah. every single silo, there are tons of ecosystems that are completely destroyed, and it takes way more you know, space to feed us with, with vegetarian and vegan sources of foods than it does the animal protein. So I'm not saying everybody needs to go to a carnivorous diet only, but I will say that in simplifying my diet to be more like the meat that I either fish or kill myself and then some veggies, I predominantly am reducing that, that the, impa- the total impact. And it's not because it's, it, it is a conscious choice, but I feel it. I feel the impact that I have when I buy, you know, certain foods from the grocery store. Yeah. So anyway, that's obviously I'm passionate about the subject. And this is an exploration. Uh, this is an exploration for you that it really stems from this fire, this, I guess, generalized curiosity, but for you, it seems way more specific. You know, your curiosity with nootropics and up-leveling human function, there is so different than this exploration of consciousness and hunting. Looking back, like these two connections, where do you see these two connections in the future? Like, what do you want to contribute in the future with these two connections that have been made in the past? Oh man. Well, I do believe that the the you know as far as the psychedelics are concerned, I think that's a really big uh, component with the nootropic side. So I think that's kind of where the overlap is with this kind of like con- being really focused on like our consciousness and 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 where we're going as a species and as individuals, having a greater perspective and connection to to everything around us, uh, and you know. It kind of, like I said earlier, I kind of feel like the the consciousness piece is really, really coming to who we are as individuals and shedding all of the nonsense, what we should be, all the things that we're told we need to do in life and get to the root of who we are. And that's been a, you know, quite a long process for me. And I'm not there yet by, you know, by any stretch, but, uh, and then using the nootropics to create what we're really meant to create. And so, you know, I went from using nootropics to running it, to run an SEO agency that yep. Yep. through it to make money, et cetera to now using nootropics to further this mission because I'm so passionate about, you know, having people re-understand the life-death cycle and what it means to feel like truly connected to the food that you eat. 
why should people care so much about the life death cycle? Like, how is that going to make them live their life well now? Oh my goodness. We're so, not only are we disconnected from the food, like you go to a grocery store and you buy some already prepackaged meat. You don't have any, you know, experience with that animal that's alive. We do the same thing in our lives. We oftentimes are living in a way that's as if we're never going to die or it's like hedonism where we're going to die or we're going to try and live it up as much as possible. And so we have this, this odd, it's like an odd kind of relationship where we're scared of it, but we know it's there. And so we try, it comes out in weird ways like, oh, I'm going to build this nonprofit with my name on it, the John D. Rockefeller, whatever, so that even when I die, it's still there kind of thing. And, you know, there's nothing wrong with that, but it's just an interesting relationship that we have with our own death, the death of our families, that that I think detracts from that presence mm. that you talked about. Oh, yeah. And, and for me, being so intimate with death has been really, really powerful because I can go outside my house and I can see a squirrel run by or see a blue jay come by and I'll stop everything that's going on like conversation like forget my phone forget everything and just like in wonder at this beautiful creature and and it's it's almost like the the acid or the (laughs) psilocybin or whatever is like really still there that just kind (laughs) of pops up every now and then and i just like had this like sense of wonder about what what's going on around me and presence is living well Man, that's so profound. And it brings up something for me that I've read from the Buddha many times. And and he said, you know, the trouble is you think you have time. Mm. That's the trouble. And it's the thinking that we have more time or it's, oh, I'll get to what what is scaring me later or I'll do the thing in five years when I can. It's like the trouble is you think you have time. And that's actually the fear component, which I've said on the show before, like I'm still understanding and I'm sharing with the audience, like my discomfort around death which is why I'm so fascinated to see this film, man. Where can people go to sign up for the early release? Like, where can they get involved for the film? Yeah, well, they can go to belowthedrop.com, just like it's, it's, you know, sounds. And there should be, you know, information to to sign up for email and stuff like that. We are planning to uh, crowdfund the post-production of the film. And it's going to be for equity. So in contrast to the traditional Hollywood model where it's like only wealthy people invest in films. And so, yeah, some of them lose money, but only wealthy people get the big you know, knockout like yeah. home runs. Um, we're trying to allow people to get involved in a great, you know, film, hopefully something that resonates with them, but also get to experience the upside because I personally, you know, I don't particularly care about t-shirts and coffee mugs and stuff like that as far as perks are concerned. So why not give equity to people in the upside of this film and, and really just be a part of the community. So anyway, we're going to do a, a WeFunder campaign to uh, to raise the, the post-production funds. And again, mm. you just go to we, belowthedrop.com. Cool. Belowthedrop.com. We'll link that in the show notes. And then also, man, I just want to honor you. This this I'm 38 years old. And so you're still in your 20s, correct? Yep. 27. And so seeing seeing the impact that you're making now, it really inspires me and people that are you know within 10 years plus or minus of you to do their deepest work. 
and I think a lot of curious soul seekers, whatever you want to call it, spiritual seekers, listen to the podcast because they know what you're talking about to be true. They know that this different lens that we can see death and this different lens that we can see life is truly possible, but it just takes cool conversations like this to bring that truth out, man. So thank you so much absolutely, for sharing your space with me and for coming on the show. Um, Last question for you. Yeah. This below the drop, this living life well, this question of wellness. This is like the best question that I, I love asking all the people. And it's wellness. How would you define this? What is, what is wellness for you? And how is this film going to really truly allow your wellness to increase? Mm. Wellness is living a life of meaning and fulfillment and connection. Yeah. Connection to oneself, connection to others deep meaningful relationships um i think that's that would be my best definition the film what's most interesting about this film is and this project is i have like i said i've never felt a connection to a higher power until now and i have never felt a project was the reason that I'm here on this planet right now as strongly as I feel right now. Like it is the mission that God, universe, source, whatever is coming through me. And my, my job really is just keep, keep the channel as clear as possible so that the higher power can work through me. Uh, and that feels like an incredible opportunity responsibility and i just feel super honored that i feel that way because it makes the project so much more fulfilling to feel like it's no matter what this is my mission i'm willing to do anything that it takes to put this out there Mm. well we support you and we'll keep it on this channel of discovering this physical and emotional man thanks for coming on absolutely brother Hey, my friend, thank you for hanging out and growing with me on today's show. Remember to hit subscribe, share this podcast with somebody you care about that you think gets to hear this message. Support the show by leaving a five-star review for the podcast right now, simply by tapping on your show artwork on your iPhone. Click that purple link that says review this podcast. It helps the show reach more conscious and smart people like you, and your voice will attract more world-class guests that want to come on the show. So let them hear your voice. For all the downloads, videos, links, and free resources mentioned on the episode, go to wellnessforce.com forward slash radio. And while you're at my house on the web, join us in the Wellness Force community newsletter on that page and I'll send you four free guides around staying healthy with your eating, moving, and sleeping while you travel. But don't let this conversation stop here. Join a group of people like you over at the Wellness Force community Facebook page. This is where we talk about the things that really matter. We share our wins, inspirations, struggles, and a lot more. So join us, tap on the show artwork on your phone and hit that purple link that says join the Facebook group and I will welcome you at the door. Okay, now you get to go out into your world and create impact for the people that you care about. So until I see you again real soon, I'm wishing you love and wellness.